Again, I want to welcome visitors, especially family members of those who are going to be baptized today. A few weeks ago, we spoke and taught on baptism, and a lot of us, maybe a lot of you, uh, come from a, a spiritual background, a heritage where you practice baptism differently than we might. So just a very brief review of what we do is we believe and practice what we call bab- uh, believer's baptism. Um, we believe that the command in the Bible is to believe and be baptized. Believing, personal believing, personal choice is how we get saved by grace through that faith. And that as an act of obedience, we are to be baptized. So we encourage all of our belie- people to believe and be baptized. We leave it up to the parents as to when they think their children, their young children, uh, truly believe and understand. So we don't have an age restriction of how old you have to be. We believe uh, children, babies, infants, unto the age of accountability, whatever that is, to that age where they can understand and make their own choice, they are under the grace of God. So we practice believer's baptism. So today we are going to be going out to the lake. Um, we practice it by immersion. That's why we go out to the lake or use a tank. Um, we believe it best pictures our identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. As we go into the water, picturing our dying to self, going under the water, identifying with the burial of Jesus Christ, and as we come out of the water, identifying with the resurrection of Christ. The Bible tells us we were crucified him with him and we were raised with him, and we are new creatures in Christ. So that's why we do what we do. I'm not trying to say it's the only way, but that's the way we do it. We just want everybody to be familiar with what we do do. Amen. Well, the title of my sermon this morning is really awkward. Living Water Worship in Spirit and in Truth. When I was putting together this title, I I must have did it a half dozen times and it never really did make sense to me, so I just had to stop and settle for that one. I think I'm trying to cover too much ground all at one time. So um, the, the Living Water Worship in spirit and in truth. If I say these words, you can lead a horse to water, what would you say to complete that sentence? You can't make him drink. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You know, I believe God puts in every single human being a spiritual thirst. While we're formed in the mother's womb, somewhere in that time frame, somewhere he deposits that in us, that we have this spiritual thirst And I also believe he deposits in us a need and a desire to worship. So there's this spiritual thirst united with this need to worship. That's part of who we are. It's part of who we are. Now in the natural, when we think of thirst, um, we probably should just think immediately of of meeting that, that thirst with water. Right? How many of you, when you're thirsty on a hot summer day, the first thing you do is go grab a glass of water? I envy most of you. I'm not that smart. I think, what have we got to drink? Lemonade or iced tea or Diet Pepsi or, or whatever. And boy, oh boy, does it taste good. And I get full way before I quench my thirst. Because the stuff doesn't really quench your thirst. We're designed that we need the water to quench our thirst. So in the natural, if we're thirsty, the best thing we can do is drink some water. Spiritual thirst. Most of what we turn to 
for relief from that spiritual thirst that we have is kind of like all that other stuff we turn to in the natural. It doesn't really quench our spiritual thirst. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But what most people look to, or many people look to, to quench that spiritual thirst, not only does it not quench their thirst, it actually can end up being very destructive. So it's not even just neutral. It can cause a lot of problems in our life. So we've got that spiritual thirst, and we also have this need to worship. You know, the question isn't or shouldn't be, do you worship or are you a worshiper? That question makes no sense because we're all worshipers. The question should be, what or who do you worship? Because we all worship something. We're created with a need to worship, and we look to things to worship. But most of those things fall way, way short of meeting that inner need that's, that's in us, put there by God, to satisfy that need to worship. You know, when we worship, you know, <clears throat> we just spent half hour or better worshiping through music and song. We just worshiped in our giving of money, finances, to missions. We worshiped as we prayed for one another. We're worshiping now as we look into the Word. Have you ever asked yourself, is your worship acceptable to God? Was what we did for the last 40 minutes, 35, 40 minutes, was it acceptable to God? And I don't mean corporately. I mean personally, individually. Was my worship, my lifting up the Lord in the music and the song, was it acceptable to God? We'll look at that too in just a few minutes. I believe there's this inseparable link between our spiritual thirst and worship. We cannot worship unless we have received that living water that quenches spiritual thirst. And out of, and as a result of receiving the spiritual waters, the living water, We can't help but worship. It should be a natural outpouring of our spiritual thirst having been met. We're going to look at a story that's going to give a lot of different different aspects of the living water, spiritual thirst, and worship. But I want to give you a little picture in your mind first because as we look at this story, we're going to see there's a character in the story that, that just doesn't seem to get it. Matter of fact, I'm not sure that they wanted to get it. And it reminds me of, I grew up on a farm. I was a farm boy, for those of you who don't know me, so sometimes my pictures are farm-related. But, you know, we used to have a, a pasture. We used to have stock cows. It's all flooded now and for wildlife and hunting, etc. But we used to have pasture down there, and we had a couple different stock ponds in the pasture so the cattle could get water. And you could fence off part of the pasture as long as you had a pond in there for water and you could save the next part of the pasture until that pasture was gone and you move over there where there's more water. Well, what do you do when the the pond dries up? Well, you got to move them to the next pasture so there's more water. 
And it used to be the most frustrating thing in the world. And you can think a lot of examples like this where you could have the gate open and you could be encouraging, coaxing, pleading with, yelling at, screaming at, cursing at those cattle to just walk through that stupid gate because the water they need is right over there. And you could get them right up to the gate. And all they'd have to do is walk through and there's the pond with water. And those stupid animals would turn and run in every direction. I think because they hated us. <laughs> and you run around and you go get them and hurt them and you're thinking, man, they're already thirsty. They're going to drop over dead of heat exhaustion if they don't just go through that gate where the water is so they can quench their thirst and that they can survive and they can produce milk to feed their calves. Frustrating. You'd think, how can an animal be so dumb? Well, at least I thought that. But then I look at the human race, and I get it. We are so much like those cattle. The living water can be right there before us, and we don't want to receive it. There's a story in John chapter 4. It's a story that a lot of you are going to be really familiar with. It's about Jesus and a woman from Samaria. And just a little background, this is really early in Jesus' ministry. He's just getting started in his public ministry. Um, he's already turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. So he's, his first miracle's been accomplished. He's traveled to Jerusalem for, for the, the Feast of Passover. He went in the temple and caused a little stir by tipping over a bunch of tables and doing some things that ticked off the religious people. He was already kind of developing that you're not welcome here thing. And then it says he, he decided to leave Judea, Judea. For those of you that Jerusalem was in Judea. And he was going to travel to Galilee, which would be going north. Now that part of the world is pretty small from, from Jerusalem and Judea to his home in Galilee, Nazareth, was about 60 miles, not very far. But there was a problem with him making that trip if you were a Jewish person. It would be kind of like going from, oh, say, central Missouri, and you want to come up to Minnesota. There's something in the way. Now, I'm not trying to put down Iowa. <laughs> My wife's from Iowa. But the only way I can get to Minnesota is to either walk through Iowa, the shortest way, or I can walk all the way around Iowa to get to Minnesota, the longest way. Now, depending on what your feelings are about Iowa, you'd make your choice. Well, Jesus had a similar thing between Judea and Galilee, where he was wanting to go, his home area, was the country or the, the state of Samaria. And the Jews and the Samaritans did not like one another. And their fighting goes back a ways. The Jews heard from God. They built a temple according to his instruction where, they told him, where God told them to build it in Jerusalem and said, this is the place of worship. And he detailed all the specifics of how to worship, though all the sacrifices, all of that stuff. And that's what they did. They went to Jerusalem to worship. The Samaritans, on the other hand, kind of did a little bit of their own thing. They built a, a, a temple on Mount Gerizim. And they worshiped there. And they worshiped sort of how they wanted to and what they wanted to. A lot of mixture. 
a few idols. You know, it doesn't matter if we do this, this, this over here, but as long as we go over here and worship, can kind of sound a little bit like us in our religion sometimes. We're going to go over here and do this, this, and this Monday through Saturday, but we'll go worship on Sunday, and there we're good. Well, I don't know how God, well, I do know how God thinks of that today, but I know how he thought of it then because he makes it clear. He wasn't impressed. The Samaritans were considered dogs by the Jews. They wouldn't even walk through Samaria if they could avoid it. There was even a phrase in their original language, and I don't remember the phrase, but basically what the phrase said was, don't ever use an eating or drinking utensil that a Samaritan has ever used. It's contaminated. So there's Jesus. He's going to leave Jerusalem, Judea, go to Galilee, and there's Samaria in between. And he takes the direct route. And he comes to a well outside a small village in Samaria. And when he comes to this well in the, near the city of Sychar or Sikar, he goes and sits down at this well, by the well. Now you've got to remember, the Galilean desert area, most of the Middle East is deserty. So it's a desert country. And they didn't have great big well drilling trucks with big bits and drills like we have today. They had to dig that thing by hand. And believe it or not, and, and we don't know for absolute certain, but there's a well located in near this location even today. It's about 100 feet deep. And a lot of it's through solid rock. And a lot of historians believe that's this particular well. We don't know for sure. But can you imagine digging a well like that by hand? So in that day, water was kind of a rare commodity. And Jesus comes and he finds this well and he sits down and it says he's tired from his travels. And he's sitting at the well and when you got to the well, they didn't leave a pail with a rope attached to it for everybody. You had to bring your own. You had to bring something. Well, Jesus didn't have anything. So there he's sitting at the well. And here comes a Samaritan woman. And she comes with her vessel to reach down, to go down in the well, to get water and draw water out of the well. And Jesus speaks to her and says, give me a drink. And she looks at him and she's a little surprised. And the reason she's surprised is, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me, a Samaritan? And that's kind of the setting for the story that we're going to look at as it begins to unfold. She's surprised by his request. We're going to read John chapter 4, verse 10 through 14. And then we'll back up and look at it a little bit. Jesus answered her. He's answering her saying, What are you doing talking to me, a Samaritan? And he answers her and says to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well, and who drank of it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered her and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. 
In verse 10, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's talking to you right now. Imagine if you could, right now, this moment, even most of the Samaritans knew and believed that there was going to be a Messiah and that he was going to come. Standing before this woman is the Messiah. Standing right there before her, the source of the living water. And he's saying, oh, if you only knew the gift that's right here and who I am that's speaking to you. And he says, if you would have asked me, instead of me saying to you, give me a drink, if you would have asked me to give you a drink, and I would have given you a drink of the living water. This woman sees only in the natural. She's looking at Jesus and she's, you haven't got a vessel to draw water with. And I know this water is not the living water because we drink it and we get thirsty again. And you're talking about some living water that if I drink it, I'll never get thirsty again. So she's like, this makes no sense. And then it's almost like she says, who do you think you are? Are you better than Jacob and his sons, whose well this is? Are you better than him that you can give living water? And Jesus continues to talk about the living water in verses 13 and 14. And he makes this clear distinction between drinking water in the natural that may quench your thirst for a little while, but you're going to get thirsty again, versus the spiritual living water that once you drink of it, you will never, ever thirst again. Now you can imagine the imagery here that might have been going through this the Samaritan woman's mind. They live in a desert area. Can you imagine? He, he goes on and Jesus says, it will be like a well within you bubbling up, kind of like a fountain in the middle of the desert of living water. And you will never, ever thirst again. The unsaved person, the unsaved soul, is kind of like a parched desert. They're looking for water, spiritual water. They're thirsty for peace. They're thirsty for joy. They're thirsty for love. They're thirsty for acceptance. They're thirsty for significance. They're thirsty for hope. All these things. The the soul of the unsaved is just crying out for those things. And Jesus is saying, there's a living water that you'll never thirst again. And she's still thinking in the natural. And in the spiritual, the unsaved soul is continually looking to quench that thirst. They're continually looking for joy and hope and peace. They're continually looking for love. They're continually looking for acceptance. They're continually looking for significance. And they're looking in all the wrong places. You can just fill in the blank at what they're looking for, what they're using to try and meet those needs. And as you look at the list that comes to your own mind, you look at them and you, and you discover not only do they not meet the need, most of the time they're destructive. They bring destruction into our lives instead of meet that spiritual thirst like the living water. 
And Jesus is standing before this woman and he's, he's, he's laying this all out, but of course he's kind of doing it in such a way that it's not crystal clear and to the unsaved mind it's just nonsense. And that's how it can be for us so often. When people come, the world comes to us, unsaved people come, and and they hopefully notice there's a a sense of peace, hope, joy, uh, satisfaction, significance in your life, and they come and say, I want what you got. And you say something like, and you'll use different words than this, oh, you need to drink of the living water. It's Jesus. It's Jesus in my life. I find my significance in knowing who I am in Christ. I know that I am truly accepted in Christ as a child of our Heavenly Father. There is a joy, there is a hope, there is a peace in spite of external circumstances because there's this fountain of living water in me and that person looks at you and goes, you are nuts. It's like those cattle, the gate's right there, there's the pond, please just go through the gate, go drink the water. You're standing before him and you're sharing Jesus Christ, the hope that's in Christ, the living water. You're offering the water that can quench the spiritual thirst. And they're like those cattle and they just look at that and they go, no way I'm not going through that gate. And this lady doesn't respond much differently. She says, I'll take the water. As long as it makes my life easier. She says something to the fact, wow, that'd be pretty cool. There's water that I'll never thirst again. Man, I won't have to walk all the way out here to this well to get my water and walk all the way back to the city. This is great. Where's the living water? Thinking in the natural. Looking to the external things. Jesus, tactfully, tactfully, we can learn from that too. Tactfully, Jesus points out there's a problem bigger than her walk between the city and the well. That problem is sin. He says to her, yeah, let's go get your husband. Well, I'm not married right now. Oh yeah, you do speak truth. You've been married a whole bunch of times and the guy you're living with now you're not married to. Oof. I perceive that he is a prophet and I could be in trouble. What do I do now? Well, she, she does what we'll so often experience when we try to share Jesus Christ with people. Because they're kind and they don't want to talk about them, they'll talk about something religious like, when do you really believe Jesus is coming back? What do you think is the right way to baptize? Do you really think there's going to be a rapture? Whatever it might be, there's a religious discussion, but the issue is skirted. Happens all the time. We get into all these other little debates or arguments or discussions, and the reality is the living water is Jesus Christ. Drink of the living water. Repent of our sins. Turn to Him and receive His forgiveness. Surrender your life to Him. In verse 20, she recognizes Jesus as a prophet. And she, she changes this discussion to something about worship. Which I think it's really neat in this story how this living water and worship are connected. Because I believe in reality in our lives, practically they're connected. Jesus is pointing out with his questions about her husbands, 
pointing out her sin, but really what he's pointing out is the need for a Messiah, a need for a Savior. You know, a lot of people don't have any idea that they're really spiritually thirsty. They don't have any idea that they really have a desire to worship something. They don't even really know consciously that it's there and consciously that's what they're doing. They just know they want something, they haven't got it and they need it and I'll try anything to get it. Drugs, alcohol, sexual promiscuity, materialism, whatever it takes. And it doesn't work. In John, I'm going to read verses 20 through 24. The woman has changed the discussion or tried to change the discussion. And she says this. She's going to change the discussion about where's the right place to worship. We know we don't agree with you Jews and you Jews don't agree with us Samaritans. So where is the right place to worship? She says this. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her. He doesn't get into the debate. He goes right to truth. He says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. As I said earlier, the Jews worshipped according to the instructions that God had given to them. Built the temple exactly how he told them, where he told them, did all their sacrifices, everything just the way they were supposed to, in obedience to God. The Samaritans adulterated it quite a bit. Their worship wasn't pleasing to God. It was filled with mixture. They weren't following his law. But you know what? Jesus is saying neither one really is going to matter. As a matter of fact, it really doesn't matter much right now. He's saying there's coming a time when true worshipers... And that's the phrase that caught my attention more than anything else in this section of Scripture. True worshipers. Which would imply that there are a lot of false worshipers. True worshipers will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Caused me to ask myself that question. Am I a true worshiper? It says, it goes on and says... The Father desires these kinds of worshipers. These are the kinds of worshipers He's looking for. These are the kinds of worshipers He's drawn to Himself. Those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. She was, work, she was focused on all this external, external stuff. Where do we worship? How do we worship? When do we worship? Who do we worship? They weren't concerned about pure, holy, heartfelt worship. Is our worship that kind of worship? 
Why do true worshipers worship in spirit and truth? Well, first of all, it said the Father seeks them and desires them. That's who he wants. And then it says God is spirit and he is truth. Therefore, we need to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, when I read that, sometimes I try to get real ethereal, real spiritual. and Worshiping him in spirit, what does that mean? Do I have to leave my body or what do I need to do? Can I, can I as a charismatic, does that mean I can only worship him in tongues or something like that? Or what the heck does this look like? It's not that complicated. If you look at this verse and the words and the way it's put together, basically what he's saying, spirit, mind, soul, heart needs to be in your worship. It's not a lip service thing. We can, anybody could come. An atheist could come and stand in our midst and sing all those songs and raise their hands and clamp and dance and do whatever they want to do. And it's all falling right to the ground. It's nothing but lip service. The last thing I want is my worship to fall to the ground and be nothing but lip service. It needs to be in spirit and in truth. It needs to be coming from a heart, a heart filled with thanksgiving, a heart filled with awe, a heart filled with reverence. I need to be willing to be vulnerable and transparent before God in my worship, whatever it is. And I'm not talking just about in the singing of songs. I'm talking about in my time of prayer, in my giving of whatever God has blessed me with, in my time of reading the Word and studying the Word, in whatever ministry He has called me to or He's called you to. All of these things are acts of worship that He's saying need to be in spirit and in truth, in spirit from our hearts. Pure, unadulterated worship. Not mixture. The real thing. Specifically, he's saying at this time into the Jewish culture, to the Samaritan culture, it's not going to be about form and ceremonies and pomp anymore. It's not going to be about bloody sacrifices. It's not going to be about any of that stuff anymore. It's not going to be about works There's going to be a new covenant, the living water, and he's standing right before her. Pure worship, in spirit, and in truth. You know, it's it's clearer when I look at what they were doing. All of their worship was types and shadows. And you might go, what's that mean? Everything in that Old Testament style of worship, the temple, the priests, the robes, the clothing, all of the instruments in the temple, the animals that they sacrificed, all of that stuff, all of those external things, all of that pointed to Jesus, the pure and spotless Lamb of God who was going to shed His blood once for all time. And Jesus is saying, Your worship needs to be in truth. Not about shadows. Not about types. Not about religious formality. Not about religious traditions. It's not about that stuff. It's about truth. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's about Him. He is the only way that we can come to the Father and worship. The Word of God says there is only one mediator between us and God the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, His Son. There's no other way. Any worship that anybody else or any other religion that's, that's saying they're worshiping the same God as us, but there is no Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, born of a virgin, died, suffered on a cross, buried and was raised from the dead. It's not getting to God. I know that because the Bible says that. 
And this is what he's saying. True worshipers worship in spirit, from the heart, with our soul, our mind, our body. Pure, unadulterated, real worship. And in truth, of Jesus and through Jesus. Not of types, not of shadows, not of ceremony, but through Christ himself. The Samaritan woman is hearing all of this from the lips of Jesus himself, the Messiah. And what does she do? She says, well, you know, we do know there's a Messiah going to come. And when he does come, he'll make sense of all this for us. Right past. Missed it all. I'm thankful the story doesn't stop there. But she missed it all. And, and, and you and I, if we're sharing Jesus Christ, if we're sharing the living water with someone, we get all through or we think we've talked and explained and they look at us and it's that deer in the headlights look at best and boy, are you nuts look at worst. And it just goes right past them. You can't make them drink of the water. But our job is to lead them to the water and let them choose one of the most powerful lines, and this is, this is the first person that Jesus tells this to. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman, a dog, according to the Jewish people. He's speaking to a Samaritan woman, a nobody. In their culture, a less than a nobody. And he identifies himself for the very first time as the Messiah. In verse 26, right after she has said, I know the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, we'll get understanding to all these things. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. What do you do with that? Well, she responded, She went back to the village telling everybody, oh, I met this guy. I I think he's the Messiah. He knew everything. He told me all about my own life. I know he's a prophet. Uh, He must be the Christ. Don't you think he's the Christ? Not oozing with confidence yet, but she was getting it. And it says that not only she, many from the city came. And eventually they said, we believe now, not because of what, what you told us and how he told you about your life. We believe now because we've heard Him teach us and Him speak to us. So to wrap this thing together, I guess the best thing I can say is we need the living water. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that is what you need to do to meet that spiritual thirst in your life. That need for acceptance, love, significance. I mean, man, alive, I am a child of God created in the image of Christ. It doesn't get a whole lot more significant than that. I am loved unconditionally. I have a peace that passes understanding. The joy of my Lord is my strength. You just go on and on. Do external circumstances stink sometimes? Absolutely. But the living water is still there like that fountain. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, that's the living water. And out of that experience... Some of you don't know us all that well, you're visitors, but, you know, we've been accused occasionally of being a little emotional in our worship. 
get the living water in you, it ought to be emotional. How can it not be emotional? The creator of the universe created me, loves me, and saved me from hell. That's nice. No, we should be jumping for joy and celebrating and worshiping him and giving all the glory and all the honor. It's emotional in spirit and in truth, worshiping him. She was face to face with the truth of the Messiah and she ultimately believed. What do you do when you're faced with the truth of the Messiah? Is he who he says he is? Is he who the Bible says he is? Is he who I have said he is? If he is, what are you going to do with it? And if you've received the living water, is your worship in spirit and in truth? Is it acceptable worship to him? Are you a true worshiper that God desires? And these are questions only you can answer, and only you and the Lord know the answer. I pray and trust that we can all say, Amen, that's who I am. The living waters, I've drank of them. They're wonderful, they're sweet. They get me through everything. My worship is pure and unadulterated from a heart filled with love and thanksgiving. But if that's not you, you can change that in a moment. Don't be like those stupid cows who wouldn't walk through the gate. The water's there for all to take and receive, but you have to receive it. Let's close in prayer, and I'm also pray to bless our food. Father, I do thank you and praise you for the living waters of Jesus Christ. Father, who is freely offered at a great cost to you. Freely offered. I pray, Lord, that you would move on each one of our hearts to receive the waters that were purchased by the blood of Jesus. And God, I pray you would search our hearts. Help us to understand, to see, and to be pure worshipers. That we'll be worshiping in spirit and in truth. That we would be those worshipers that you desire to worship you. Lord, we pray all of these things that you would be glorified. And we also pray, Lord, for our time of fellowship that will follow. We ask you to bless the food that we're eating, going to eat, and the, the people who have prepared it. And we, we pray your blessing and your presence at our baptismal service that follows. We ask all this in Jesus' name.